Hi, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I am the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 53 is an interview with Ricardo Costa. Dr. Ricardo Costa works in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University as an academic, researcher, consultant, and practitioner in sports dietetics and extreme physiology. Ricardo is an HCPC registered dietitian in the UK, a senior registered sport dietitian UK, accredited practicing dietitian Australia, and advanced sports dietitian Australia, who came to Monash University in August 2013 from Coventry University, which is in the UK. Ricardo completed his PhD at the University of Wales in neuroendocrine and nutritional immunology on the influence of sleep deprivation, cold exposure, exercise stress, and nutritional intervention on selected immune responses. And I'm sure you can all agree that that definitely relates to ultra running. And these examine the impact of individual and combined stresses on immune function. Additionally, the role of nutrition intervention in the effect of exercise on immune function. Ricardo's recent work has focused on the impact of multi-stressor activity on immune, thermoregulatory and gastrointestinal health, and additionally, the impact of ultramarathon competition on nutrition and hydration status and implication for health. Ricardo's research interests include the impact of exercise stress with and without other stresses on gut health and the role of nutrition under stress on gut health, something I'm sure we're all interested in. Over the last few years, he has established and led an international multi-centre research team investigating the impact of ultra-endurance competition on nutritional and hydration status and on various physiological and immunological parameters, a few tongue twisters there, in which the issue of gut health have been identified. Previously, as course director for sports dietetic training in the UK, he was an active consultant and supervisor in sports dietetics, providing and supervising sport and exercise nutritional support to a wide range of sports at recreational, amateur and elite Olympic level um, athletes. So Ricardo certainly is very well versed in the subject of nutrition and definitely for ultra runners too. So I'm sure you will find this conversation very interesting. Are injuries or niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Do you need to run at the moment because of lockdown and you need something for your sanity, especially because you can't get to the gym and you can't because you have injuries? Well, get on top of these so that you can get back to that simple joy that is running. Come in and see the specialists at Health and High Performance where they utilise the latest in technology and experience to help you get back to your running best, no matter what that best is. And honestly, at the moment, the best thing is just to be running, to be outdoors and, and to feel a little bit of freedom. So to get back to achieving the results you want and are capable of, head to www.healthhp.com.au forward slash run. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Ricardo, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. No, thank you very much for inviting me. Now, can you tell my listeners a bit more about yourself and how you became interested in sports, dietetics and extreme physiology? Yeah, uh, so my, my background is um, during high school, I was already uh, on the world uh, triathlon circuit back in the 90s. So um, I, I started as a professional athlete uh, from 1993 to 2003. Um, and during that time, of course, nutrition was always a very important part. You know, what, what can I eat to, you know, uh, keep me going and, you know, keep me uh, earning my income because yeah. um, 
having your sponsors and winning races and and getting the prize money is what pretty much sustains your life. And you know, if you can't keep up, that then you're going to have to retire. So you know, so what what could I do? That the interest was going into nutrition. Then as as my body couldn't keep up with the younger folk coming through, and I started to go into retirement age at thirties. And yeah, I went into academia um, and yeah, it was just by chance. I went into, you know, sport and exercise science and then from there went into nutrition and then from there went into dietetics and then from there into sports dietetics. Um, my, my PhD was with the U, uh, UK military uh, and it was focusing on exercise immunology uh, because one of the big problems with special ops and, and recruitment training in the, in the military was illness and infection. So they wanted to find out you know what's what was the main cause so my phd was um breaking all the stresses down so sleep deprivation food restriction exercise stress uh, cold and heat breaking them down individually and combined to see which is the most immunosuppressive and causing the most problems um and that that led into the ultra endurance scene because with military a lot of the activities is ultra endurance yeah um one thing that did come up was gastrointestinal symptoms and then um, uh, my postdoc was looking, was focusing on nutrition and hydration status of ultra endurance runners. Cause back then, back in the early, oh, uh, late 2010s, early 2010s, um, there wasn't that much research out there. So we did some exploratory work looking at um, the, just the feeding and drinking habits of ultra endurance races over a 24 hour race and over a multi-stage. Uh, and the main thing that come out is, nearly you know nearly all the runners are complaining of gastrointestinal symptoms um and then i went into the literature to find okay so you know how can we prevent some of these and actually when i went to literature everyone's exploring it and saying yes athletes are having gastrointestinal symptoms but no one's doing anything about it <laughs> so there is there wasn't any prevention management strategy in place and so that's how we got into it more as a translational research trying to help the athletes that we work with and to be yes, honest, that's a I mean, snapshot of me. Yeah. To be honest, I mean, I, I still speak with many athletes who still experience a lot of GI distress during racing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's still a big problem. Definitely. So, um, what can athletes do to decrease GI distress during racing? I know for myself, I find drinking more water helps, but is there, there more to it than that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, trying to break, trying to break this down as you know as simplistic as possible is what we found out with you know almost ten years of research we've done is there's not, not one thing that stands out. Every athlete is completely individual, and the mm, causal yeah. factors of their symptoms it could be you know a wide array. Um, if, if, as you just said, it could be a hydration status in yours, in your case, in another person's case, it could be just the exercise itself is causing intestinal injury on another person. It could be the bacterial leakage going to circulation causing vomiting nausea. Is this just no right or wrong? Um, but I can say, um, that it all stems down to three main features. So there, there are three main features and one is blood flow moving away from the, the gut when we exercise. So it means the gut's compromised, it's actual yeah. activity and structure's compromised. So if you're trying to eat and drink on a compromised gut, well, it, there's a problem already there. Um, another one is the stress response of exercise. So simply just exercising and that sympathetic drive 
increasing cortisol, adrenaline, glucagon, all those catabolic hormones that start breaking down fuel for you to use, that itself shuts down the gut as well. So if you're trying to drink and eat on, on a gut which function is, is reduced, of course you're gonna have problems. And then there's another one which is very common in runners. So this, it's the third one, it's sort of, it's, it's out on the extremities. It may or may not cause problem. That's what we call mechanical strain. And that is just multiple vibrations or impacts on the gut. So if you're running for say, six, you're doing an ultra trail run, you know, you're yeah. running for six hours or even an Ironman, you're on a bike for four hours and then you're gonna go and run for three hours. It's just that vibration on the GI tract. We now have evidence that actually destroys some of the tissue. If you destroy oh, okay. the tissue, then of course it's it, the compromise. It, the gut's going to be compromised. Um, so and how long does it? Just things. out of interest, how does how long does it take for that tissue to recover? Oh, within within twenty four hours, everything gets back to goes back to normal. So all the markers come back to normal. Mm. Um, but it just depends. That that's overall. Um, a general response but it just depends how much the damage is mm. so for example if there are been athletes that have done say you know Ironman races that have have been detected to have um colitis so the actual uh, destruction on the colon uh, wall and that's been there for a week so mm. the signs have been there for a week so it just depends on how much the damage is caused and that individual response to repairing that damage. But I, generally, within 24 hours, everything gets recovered. We've seen that in the multi-stage ultramarathon races. So how did you, like you said, you tested on 24-hour races and multi-stage. How did you go about doing that? Oh, that's a very big, long <laughs> project. So I had a team of about 14 people. Oh, wow. And of course... We, we went to the race with the, and we had a portable lab and, you know, we set up the portable lab to do blood samples, urine samples, saliva samples, and, you know, your standard, you know, physiological measures. Um, and we just did that before the race, before the stage, after the stage in the multi-stage events. Uh, and then in the 24 hours, I mean, we did it sort of every six hours. And with the 24 hours, it's normally a circuit. Yeah, yeah, I've done my So one it's easy, yeah. the athletes always... Yeah, they come yeah. back to the same point, so it's easier to do that. But, but in long find... story short, you just take. Sorry, go on. Yeah. I was just going to say, you take a mobile lab. Yeah. So, but would it get progressively more difficult? You know, getting urine and saliva samples as they get tighter and more dehydrated throughout the time. Yes, of course. Yep. So, saliva and blood and saliva and urine samples. Yes, and it's that's especially with dehydration. Mm. Um, blood samples are fine. So yeah, blood will yeah. always be there. So yeah, yeah we can yeah. we can grab that. But that's not a problem because the blood samples are the ones that are more um uh, are more valid and reliable ah, okay. in terms of the biomarkers. So yeah, we, if we can, we always go for blood sampling. And so um, why like we recommend ultra runners to practice their nutrition right in a training scenario, and and they and myself included, I've practiced stuff, it works great, then it comes to race day, halfway through the race, I'm sick and I can't consume my race nutrition. Why, what is so different about racing to training that that happens? Mm -hmm. So in racing, if, if you like it or not, you'll always be at a higher exercise intensity than you would in training. Because um, in training, you can stop if you're not feeling well, there's other yeah. factors associated. So 
it, it's always a high stress scenario with um uh, with a competition at the same time just the anxiety nerves of the competition itself that's increased the sympathetic drive so that's just another factor on top of shutting down the gut um so it is two scenarios where the, the, the stress is greater in the competition sense and it's just the stress per se it shuts down the function of the gut. When I mean function of the gut, it actually shuts down gastric emptying, yes. uh, digestive properties of the accessory organs and, in, in, and absorption at the intestinal level. So the actual transporters of carbohydrate are downregulated, so they sort of shut down. So things are more likely to be malabsorbed. So yeah. not going to the blood, stay along the gut, and that will give you gut problems as well. Yeah. And what about, say, for instance, at one race, I use a specific nutrition and it works really well. So I think, okay, I'll use it at the next race. Next race, it doesn't work. Any yeah. answers for that one? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah ab absolutely. It's, and, and, and this is, okay. Remember I talked about, you've got the three, we've got the three main causal factors, Okay. So they're, they're the ones that create the gastro symptoms in the first place. You, the blood flow, the sympathetic yep. drive, and or the mechanical strain. Then under that, we've got another layer of factors which can create symptoms. And this is what we call exacerbation factors. And exacerbation, and there's two categories. You've got extrinsic factors and intrinsic factors. So I'll, I'll quickly explain these. Um, extrinsic factors are exercise intensity, Duration, so the longer you go for, the worse it is. The higher intensity, the worse it is. Uh, environmental conditions, yeah. so the hotter it is, the worse it is. Altitude, the more you go to altitude, the worse it is. Uh, circadian variation, mm. so we now have data from the lab papers currently being reviewed at the moment that at night, so if you're racing at night, the, the shutdown of the gut is more than the day, and oh, the okay. mechanism for that is a higher cortisol response. So if you're doing a trail race at night versus day, you could be consuming the same thing, but the scenarios are different and you've got a, a shutdown gut versus a competent gut in the day versus night. Um, uh, and, and hydration status. So in one scenario, you'll probably think you're hydrated when you start, but uh, on the other one, it, um, you, you might be starting in a, in a, in a mild hypohydrated state. Yeah. Um, so they're yeah. your extrinsic factors and then we've got the intrinsic factors intrinsic is within the body so that is a, a biological sex so we do see differences between males and females and that's due, due to the hormonal status and we do we do now have evidence in terms of the menstrual cycle um, okay. uh, uh, during certain periods symptoms are more prone than the others um, the uh, predisposition so if you have a family history of gastrointestinal in, in inflammatory or functional disorders. So Crohn's disease, celiac disease, um, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, you're more likely and there's probability of greater symptoms than if, if you don't have family history of that. We now have data from a recent study just been published. Now the gut microbiome, so the bacterial composition you gut can accelerate or decelerate the symptoms that you get. And, and the paper gives you a, a breakdown of the different bacteria which can prompt it or, um, uh, or reduce it. Um, and then in, intrinsically, of course, the hydration status fits that as well. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's a, a quite a complex system. So it's not in, in one, so if, for example, you're saying you're consuming the same foods, but in one scenario, you, you're, you're, you did well and the other one not. So in one, 
in one situation, it could be just the time of day effect. Yeah. But in the other scenario, it could just be your hydration status where you started was slightly different. But even though the food's all the same, so the intrinsic, extrinsic factors could be altering whether you get symptoms or not to the same food. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what can we do? Like many ultra races, you know, start in the morning and then go all day and go all night. What should we do um, to sort of get around that effect of the cortisol at night? Because we obviously yeah. still need to keep eating. Yeah, yeah. So um, what, what we suggest, and we're testing this at the moment, so this is all anecdotal, yeah. um, and we've just had comments, is training your gut at night. So oh, okay. if, you're, if, you, if you're training, we normally rec recommend people train your gut in the day to, just yeah. to help accelerate the gastric function absorption of those nutrients um, uh, to the day exercise. But if, if you know you're racing at night, it's very important that you do the night training. But it's not just one off. What we found is that you need at least two weeks of repetitive training the gut to wow. actually have the ad ad adaptive effect. So a minimum of two weeks. And within those two weeks, you know, a minimum of three times a week of actually going out for a two or three hour run. And actually, um, we do not recommend... Um, we do not recommend for gut training to do your race nutrition. What we recommend oh. is do 120% of your race nutrition. Oh, wow. So do more, more than what you would do in a race because you need to overstress an organ. I know it's, yeah. it's hard. It's training. Yeah. You need to overstress your organ to then it be easier during the race. See, I probably so do less. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, if you don't do this, you're not gut training. All yeah. you're doing is pra practicing the behavior of the nutritional intake. You're not really stressing the gut and, and getting it to adapt to that uh, overburden. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's a fair point. Yep. I shall have to up my game. <laughs> All right. And, um, and so we've talked about hydration. Um, like, you know, what is an optimal hydration for, for an athlete, like just generally day to day? Well, I, I can't answer that. It just depends on what your losses are. And yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's so hard. And also without laboratory methods, uh, we now, we've got to the state where uh, unless you're doing blood sampling, bioelectric impedance and doing multiple movements of hydration, can we actually accurately say you are in a euhydrated hypo or hypo state? So, it's very difficult, but um, I mean, the, the easiest way and, and what the literature is stating now is using a combined, a, a, com a combination of methods. So using your thirst response, using changes in body weight, resting, yeah. so wake up uh, body weight and your and urine measure of hydration, just urine color and urine frequency. Yeah. So in other words, if, if you're not thirsty, um, it's, it's probably it, there is sufficient uh, body water in the blood to control that thirst. And unlike, you know, popular belief in the past, that mm. thirst is not a good mechanism of, of dehydration. And when you're thirsty, you're ready to do it. That is a, such a lie. That is such a myth. Oh, that's it, good to know. We, the, th the thirst mechanism kicks in when your plasma osmolality um, sort of hits uh, a, a 295 milliosmoles per kilogram. And that is still within hydration's, within your hydration. In other words, when you start to get thirsty, you are still hydrated. So it doesn't okay. mean, you know, you're too late. That's yeah. not correct to say that. So if you're, if you're, um, 
if you're not thirsty, you're fine. If you're going to the toilet frequently and giving good volume, and if color's reasonably clear, you're fine. And then if your body weight doesn't change on, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis when you wake up, uh, then you're fine as well. But if you notice that you're thirsty, you're not going to toilet as much, and when you do, your color is, is um, uh, you're dark. And then when you wake up in the morning, you notice you've got a couple of uh, 100 grams uh, um, underweight consistently. Yeah. Using those three indications probably says that you probably need to increase your water intake. But whether you are specifically dehydrated or overhydrated, we can't say unless we have a laboratory test to yeah, confirm that. Yeah, that's fair enough. But those can, you, methods, can you train yourself to need less, less hydration when you're racing? Is that possible? Because I know no, some people try that. No, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, it's just all about tolerance. I mean, some of the elite runners yeah. can lose, you know, six to 8% body weight, yeah. but it's just their physiology can cope with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether that's a training effect or genetic effect, we don't know, but... Um, or whether if they were able to be hydrated a bit more, they'd go faster. We don't know. Mm. That's that argument as well. Mm. Um, they yeah. do lose 6% and they negative split, but what about if they were able to maintain their hydration, would they go faster? Yeah. Um, so yeah. th there is no training mechanism to enhance your performance with dehydration. We notice with dehydration, all the physiological markers just go crazy. So yeah. ideally to optimal performance, you want to maintain your hydration. But it, doesn't, it, it does not mean that you need to replace everything you lose. With exercise, you'll always lose a bit. Yeah. And as you're, long, you're, long, you're within the 2 to 3% body mass loss, you're fine. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, what about uh, the idea of fasted runs and becoming fat adapted through using fasted runs? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, out there. Yeah. Now, um, <clears throat> Oh, geez, how to approach this and this question? Yes, it's a it can be a bit of a rabbit hole. This one. <laughs> well, I'll first I'll first um, I'll first answer I'll first answer by saying that you wake up in the morning, and uh, it, depending on what you've eaten the days before, will reflect your muscle glycogen content. So your muscle glycogen content will not deplete with sleeping. Once it's in the muscle, it can only come out with muscle contraction okay. for energy production. So you're waking up with low blood sugar levels or low blood glucose levels because your liver glycogen, which regulates your blood sugar levels overnight, is depleted. So you're exercising with a depleted liver glycogen store, not with a muscle glycogen store. Now, whether you use fats or carbohydrates as a fuel, is also dependent on your muscle glycogen stores. So if you if you wake up even with 50% or 40% muscle glycogen stores and you start training, I'm sorry, but you're gonna be using muscle glycogen as a primary fuel for that exercise session. Yeah. All, you're, all you're doing is you've depleted your liver glycogen which regulates blood sugar levels. So okay. this is why it's difficult to answer the question is, um, if, if you for say the day before, have um, done an in uh, a high intensity interval session, which has depleted your muscle glycogen stores, and then you haven't consumed any carbohydrates after that session and have just consumed fats and protein, so you haven't replenished that muscle glycogen, and then you've gone to sleep, and then you've woken up the next morning, then your muscle glycogen is depleted, and then when you start exercising, 
then of course you're going to use fat as a fuel because there's just no carbohydrates in the muscle. So it just, yeah. it just depends. The fuel used in the muscle depends what you've done a couple of days before the day before in terms of intake and training status. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that so, sounds, but, <coughs> go on. Uh, no, I was just going to say, but what we know now from the literature is in order to enhance your fat oxidation, you don't really need to do any of these, you know, crazy oscillating diets. If, if you're God. training, no, <laughs> but it's, it's quite basic to understand is that if you're and a lot of a lot of elite ath, uh, endurance athletes do not do these crazy diets and absolutely just hammer in their races and they have massively high fat oxidation rates. And the reason yeah. for that is that their training load if when they do their long training sessions, say for example, a cyclist could go out for you know eight hour bike ride, an Ironman triathlete can do a two, you know two two to three hour bike ride and then do a brick and go straight into one hour run. That that's a four hour session or a six hour session. Your muscle glycogen content will only cover you for about two hours before it becomes depleted, even in a in a moderate exercise state. And we see that in our labs when we when when we look at oxidation rates in our athletes in the lab. After two hours, we see the crossover. Carbs goes down and fats go up, ir irrespective if we're feeding them, you know, 90 grams an hour carb oh, okay. every hour. You get the so switch even if because it's in the muscle. Yep, yep. Completely. Okay. We've got, I mean, I can send you the papers that show this, that we're mm. feeding 90 grams of sugar an hour and at the end of three hours, carbohydrate oxidation drops and fat oxidation goes up and blood sugar levels up around six, eight millimolar, meaning they're oh, wow. hyperglycemic. They're, they're, um, sorry, they're, yeah, they're hyperglycemic, um, so the blood sugar levels are high. Wow. Because it's, the muscle dictates, what's happening in the muscle will dictate what fuel is going to be used, not what's in the blood. And it takes time for what's in the blood to get into the muscle. Yeah, of course. Um, so going back to my point, you've got, you know, six-hour session for a cyclist, four-hour session for an Ironman. After two hours, you're depleted. So you're training two hours in depleted state anyway yeah, yeah. for the triathlete. And that cyclist will be training for four hours in a depleted state. So those adaptations will occur naturally when you do your long sessions. That's, that's so good. Go into the... Yeah, it's so good that we don't have to obsess about all that sort of stuff then. <laughs> no, not at all. And I mean, we're about to send a paper off this week with, with all that data to show that we've got, uh, you know, uh, about 20 um, uh, uh, highly trained ultramarathon runners and Ironmans that just using a normal high carbohydrate diet and their fat oxidation rates when we get to the depleted state are a, a 1.2 to 1.7 grams per minute. So it means they're excessively high fat burners irrespective of them, uh, their yeah. diet. And, it's, and the correlation there is it's because their training volumes are so great. They, yeah. they will be in that fat burning zone anyway, just because of their training. That's so good because it's carbs are nice to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and what are your thoughts so you on? You can. Yes, yay. <laughs> and what are your thoughts on um, engineered food versus real food when racing? And and certainly for ultra marathons, right, uh, where where we're at a slower pace, I guess, than say a marathon. Can you give me some examples? So uh, I'm a, uh, a, um, a real food, I'm assuming, say, fr fruit puree. Yeah, or maybe um, a sandwich. Or a banana or, or a mango. Uh, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, and I'll have a sandwich or people like uh, soup or noodles, yep. you know. You know, especially during the night, you might have something hot like soup or noodles. Yep. Um, yep. 
because if you're out for a really long time, it's nice to have something that feels like food. But um, yeah. I know there are certain athletes who, who will do 100 miles just on gels. Um, and I'm yeah. just wondering, yeah, what your thoughts are yeah. on that. Well, again, there's no right or wrong, but mm. when the, the longer you go for, um, what we, we start to see something called taste fatigue and flavor fatigue. Yeah. So the longer, so yeah, for marathon run or Olympic course track and all those are fine, but as soon as you start going to the, uh, the ultra, you need to start mixing around flavors, tastes and textures. Because if you just stick to one thing, flavor fatigue will kick in and that will bring on symptoms on its own because of that taste and flavor fatigue. And also there's a behavior element that the athlete will try to avoid that food because I just get sick of it. So, um, so it's important to get, as you said, to get that mixture in. Um, whether it causes symptoms or not, then that's where the gut training comes in. You need to train what you're going to use in the race in your training. Um, there is, there is a, um, uh, um, a, a degree. So liquids cre create less gastric uh, burden, semi-solids are in the middle and then the solids create the, 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 the biggest yeah. uh, burden. But it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean it's going to cause symptoms. If you train in those solid foods, then you'll be, your gut will be adapted to use those in the race. So um, it's highly recommended the, the, the athletes that we work with, um, they come to us. So we, I, the question we ask is, you know, what do you normally eat? What would you like? What are your favorite tastes and flavors? And then we mix it over, you know, a 24 hour or a you know, five day multi-stage ultramarathon, et cetera. And another thing that I'll probably can throw in there is we've noticed that as the race prolongs, the, the necessity or the, the, um, the um, uh, not the necessity, the, the feeling of salty food starts to kick in. Yes. Yeah. So we also, we also seen that normally we We'd recommend sweet stuff in the beginning, but then translate into more starchy and salty yeah. foods towards the end. And that is this is not necessarily in terms of physiological need. It is more a sensory and behavioral and perceptive need. Yep, I have noticed that myself. So, yep, that's fair enough. Um, what about, like, people talk about after a session or, uh, you know, a hard training session, there's an optimal window for eating food. Is that an old wives' tale or is that true? Oh, no, that's very true. Yes. <laughs> and then I, I can tell you what it is. Yeah. So um, what, we, when we look at recovering nutrition, so you're talking about recovering nutrition? Yeah, basically. Uh, yes. Yep. So again, what, what we've found recently with recovering nutrition is starting to get a bit more complex. It's get, starting to get slightly more complicated now with um, uh, carbohydrates, uh, replenishments, ideally it's immediately after, but you've got uh, within the first hour. So ideally immediately after we got the first hour with protein intake. Uh, so to help with muscle protein synthesis, recovery, repair, growth, training, adaptations, similar, the best is immediately after, but you've got that hour window. Yep. Um, with rehydration, uh, you've got up to two hours because you don't want to be shoving in the fluids immediately because of correct diuresis. So you want to, instead of just go in and you'll pee it out, it won't retain. Yeah. yeah. So you'd want to um, uh, sip on it over the two hour period. And you've got the carbs and proteins in there as well. And they are the most potent osmotic nutrients that we have, not electrolytes. 
And oh, we've okay. seen this clearly in our research data. Everyone's obsessed with electrolytes, but yeah. we now, like for example, in our recent test, we, we gave you know a high sodium electrolyte beverage, and then we just gave you know a carb protein beverage with very little sodium, and it was the carbon and protein beverage that was able to retain water nearly 50% more than the sodium, which half of it was oh, peed wow. out. So huh. you, the carbon process will help retain that water. So if you want to help with rehydration, the nutrients need to be there as well. Um, for immune function, mm, so for important. immune competency, which, which you need not just for um, uh, illness infection prevention and you've got the open window of, of, of potential um, uh, exposure. Um, it has to be immediately, I mean, immediately, as soon as you finish, or even during the cool down period, consume something then, because we've noticed if we, if we leave it for an hour period, you still get that depressive drop and it stays down for six hours. But if you give it immediately after, it plateaus it, and depending on what you eat, you, you could get an immune boost. Um, oh, okay. So that one needs to be immediately. And, yeah. and then there's, a, there's the fifth element of recovery, which is the GI tract. As, as I mentioned, the GI tract is compromised. And this, and this way it gets tricky yeah. is because you're trying to give things immediately after, but we've noticed that if you give things immediately after versus an hour, there's more malabsorption. Okay. So not all of it's going through. Yeah. And there's more GI symptoms because the, the transporters are shut down and they haven't kicked in yet. Um, so I guess the, the, the best of both worlds, we haven't tested this yet, but the best of both worlds will be to have your carb protein uh, or the meal, beverage, whatever it is, uh, start immediately after and small and sweet for sort of the first hour. Yeah. So it won't, it won't be a big, massive intestinal load. It'll be smaller amounts that give time for the GI tract to kick in, but at least you're already starting to put some in there to help that immune maintenance. Yeah. Does and, that all make sense? Or yeah, that no, 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 that was great. All and that's, place. it's really interesting about the immune response because I've certainly found like after a big race, I don't feel like eating, but I always get sick afterwards. So that really clears right. that one up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. Cool. And, and is there um like a, a best ratio of carbs to protein or it just doesn't matter? Well, the, the standard recommendations we give um, that has, has helped with all these recovery uh, markers is 1.2 grams of carbs per kilogram body mass yep. um, in a relatively, uh, relatively um, lean athlete. So, of course, if you're, someone is overweight or have got excess body fat, of course, they could be overestimating these values. So, yep. 1.2 grams of carbs, 0 0.4 grams of protein. So, a three-to-one ratio. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And the reason for that is that the, pro the protein uh, uptake by tissues is very slow. So, there's no point giving more. It, it, you're just going to be peeing it out. Wasting so, it's it. actually better giving, yeah, small yeah. doses every two hours instead of, you know, one big dose at once. Whereas yeah. carbohydrates, you can give as much as you want. It'll just get going to store until it's full, it filled up. Yep. Um, and are there any supplements or anything like that, that um, nutritionally can help athletes or can they get everything from their food? Well, from, from a dietetic perspective, um, we have three stages of nutritional support. So sport nutritional support. Um, 
when we do an assessment on athletes, we, we look at their energy expenditure for their or nutrient expenditure for their training status. And in normally most cases, you can get everything from food, everything from food. If you're training, you know, up to two to four hours a, um, a day, easy to get things from food because there are, there are um, ways to fortify foods to increase carb, protein, micronutrients. Um, I mean, an example I can give, this is just a basic example. If you can increase the, the carb content of say a smoothie, just whack in one or two heat tablespoons of skim milk powder and there you've got your carb protein dose increase there. Uh, so that's just one example. Um, then uh, if, if their nutritional needs can't be met via food, example, they do six hours of training a day. Uh, that means they're more time training and less time able to prepare food because that's the problem, more in terms of food preparation and time. Uh, and also consumption. If you're having big bulky meals that you need to eat, you just don't feel hungry and it's just yeah. too much to eat. Then we fortify fluids. So juices, smoothies, milks, everything you, you put... Um, uh, um, normal food substances into those. And then there's a third element is only if you can't meet your nutritional requirements via food, food fortification, then we give supplements and the supplement would be, you know, uh, pro proteins, carbohydrates and or vitamin mineral supplementation. But we're looking at athletes that are, you know, training six hours or more at that stage. So if you're not training six hours or more, you don't really need, uh, additional supplementation you can do everything from food and if you're not doing everything from food it just means you don't know what you don't know how to do it yeah basically yeah, yeah that's fair enough now i had a um one of my listeners ask a question because i interviewed an athlete who had had rhabdomyol i can't say it rhabdo um yes. and and uh, this listener wanted to know what effect can nutrition have on preventing rhabdo right Oh geez, I I can't answer that one because I need to know what the backgrounds, the background history so, of but, that um, athlete was. But yeah, but um, say for he he, we're talking just general athletes. Can athletes do anything generally yeah. with their food to to avoid it? Oh, not necessarily because it's got to do more with the training status and the actual stress response of the actual competition. Mm. They pushed it too hard, too long, and they they. Um, uh, I guess didn't mitigate any of those issues uh, during the competition because technically they shouldn't get any rhabdomyolysis unless they might have some medical condition. Yeah. But if they do get that, it just means they've pushed it too hard, too too much, too long, um, and then yeah, that would be a warrant for medical support. But yeah, from a so, nutritional perspective, yeah, yeah it's there's nothing we can really do. Just meet your nutritional needs for your training and competition. I mean. If you're if you go into competition and you're not meeting your energy requirements, so low energy availability, I mean there's a risk yeah. factor there, and excessive training without proper recovery, where the muscle tissue is already in the sort of pre-damaged state, but that's the preparation phase leading up. Not really, really not much you can do for the actual competition. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. No worries. Um, also, there's um talk about you know periodizing nutrition. Uh, should athletes periodize their nutrition according to what they're doing day to day or uh, for different cycles of training? Sorry, I, I missed that. I okay. missed that, Isabel. Yep. Should athletes periodize their nutrition? 
like on a day-to-day -day basis yes. and also on a, um, on a training cycle basis? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is, that's the way forward for sport and exercise nutrition. It is dietary periodization based on what you're about to do and what is the aim and objective of that session. So like, for example, if you're doing a high intensity interval session where you're going to be working at your, say your lactate threshold to try and push your um, anaerobic threshold up. Of course, to do those sessions, you need to be carbo-loaded. You need to have that quick energy full to get to those exercise intensities. But the next morning, if you're going to do a long ride that you want to enhance fat oxidation, well then at the end of that session, uh, provide your recovery nutrition in terms of providing the protein, small amounts of... Oh, hang on, I've lost you. Um, but try and avoid the carbohydrates going into that session in the morning. Yeah. And, then you, and then when you wake up, you do have a normal breakfast and you do have carbohydrates in order to provide the body with some blood glucose so you don't do your session in a hypoglycemic state because it'll just be horrid. Yes, and exactly. that has no impact. Oh God. And that will have no impact whatsoever of oxidation in the muscle because it, it, it won't, it will just be hanging around in the blood. It will take a very long time to get through. So it's more just for you to feel okay to start the session to do the session. Um, uh, and then, yeah, you do your session, but then imagine that afternoon or the next morning, you've got another high intensity session. Then of course, then you're going to start to increase the carb concentration before that next high interval session. So yeah, your diet is always changing. You apply based on what you're going to be doing next. Yeah. And, and should you like, um, I've heard that you should maybe eat less on an easy day as compared to on a um, day with more training. Is that correct as well? Of course, if you're having if you're having a, a rest day or light day, there's no point um, no point in you know stacking up on a whole heap of nutrients, unless you're you're doing your pre preparation nutrition and you've got an interval session the next day. Yeah. So, but that means you can you can have a light breakfast, you can have a light lunch, but then after lunch, when you have your afternoon snack and evening meal or supper make sure you consume higher amounts going so that will fill up your muscle glycogen stores for the next morning if you do yeah. your interval session but normally interval sessions will be done in the afternoon not necessarily in the morning yeah, but, yeah, so, yeah. yeah that's fair enough yeah um is there anything else that you think um ultra endurance athletes should know about nutrition and that sort of thing well going back to the gut as i said before it's very individualized and um it's very difficult to answer. Like a lot of athletes come to me and say, oh, you know, how do I, how do I, and even yourself has asked me the question, and how, how do I stop gastrointestinal symptoms? Well, I, I don't because I, I need to assess you first. So the best thing to do is you need to do a gut assessment. It's actually challenge your gut during exercise in a simulated setting in the environmental conditions you're going to be racing in where the symptoms occur. And then from there, you can identify what that individual's causal factors and an exacerbated effect. And then you can put an action plan in place. Yeah. So if it is because of dehydration, you know, well, you get to drink some more fluids. If we've, and we've had this case, the sweat response is so great that that athlete can't even drink enough fluids to meet the sweat response to stop dehydration. Well, then it means you need to challenge your gut with extra fluids to try and enhance fluid uptake. Um, 
If it's because of the heat, you're not adopted to the heat, well then need to come up with strategies for external internal cooling to keep the body temperature down so you don't get symptoms. If yeah. it's because of FODMAPs and you didn't realize, so we'll identify that in the test, then okay. we need to change the high FODMAP to low FODMAP food. Yeah. So there's multiple ways of reducing symptoms, but it, it just pretty much depends on what is causing the problems and you need to identify that through an assessment. Yeah. Yep. No, that's, that's fair enough. And, and another question, can you like um, preload with water to sort of prehydrate before a race? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah. And there's, there's multiple strategies you can use. So yep. um, uh, sodium citrate, sodium chloride, glycerol, um, I mean, there's multiple ways you can. The question is, is, is you know, do you want to? And, and is, is it going to be of benefit for you? Mm. So if, it's, if the race is in the heat, um, there's really... Uh, so do you want me to give you the two, uh, two scenarios? Yep. So if, if, you're, if your racing is in thermoneutral conditions, like 20 degrees, there's really no need for it. Mm. Um, because you'll be able to maintain your hydration during the race and the heat stress is not going to be a problem. But if you're training in hot conditions, um, then yes, you probably do want to start with a slightly higher uh, plasma volume or a higher body water content just to help with thermoregulation. However, just the natural adaptations of being in the heat, so heat, heat acclimation and heat adaptations will increase your plasma volume, you know, one to two litres. So there's really no need to do sodium citrate, sodium um, uh, chloride or, or, or glycerol um, uh, protocols in order to increase plasma volume because just the, at a normal presence of being in the heat will start to cause that. Um, so yes, you can do it, but in reality, do you need to do it? In most cases you don't because your body will adapt to the environment yeah. it's in. Yeah, so the body, the body's pretty smart, really, I guess. So. Yeah, and also, actually, um, Isabella, I'll mention that if we, if we look, if we're talking to um, ultra endurance runners, or um, absolutely not, do not be fluid overloading the body oh, because okay. our our biggest problem is hyponatremia and and mm. exercise hyponatremia, um, and your training, your heat acclimation all that will increase plasma uh, volume. So just the, those long endurance sessions, you'll, we've seen that ultra endurance plasma volume is greater expanded than with your you know, Olympic course or your um, short distance and uh, marathon runners, simply because they're training for longer periods of time at low intensity, the body's adapted to that. So yeah. do not be doing any of these adaptations because you're just gonna cause yourself more problems. Yeah, that's good to know. Now, how can um, my listeners find out more about getting the testing done? Well, they, uh, either you can contact us at Monash University. So Monash University, yeah. we, we, we do run a clinic there. But um, I've already trained other sports dietitians and exercise physiologists on how to do these um, uh, gut assessment uh, challenges. Um, so it'll just be uh, contacting your local exercise physiology clinic or sports dietitian to see if they have any um, uh, have any resources to do the testing. Okay, that's good to know. And I'll put your um, I'll put the Monash University details in the show notes. 
Um, and um, thank you very much for sharing all of no. your knowledge. No, thanks very much, Isabella, for inviting me. Always happy to help the fellow, fellow ultra runners and fellow athletes. Absolutely. That's great. Thanks so much. And I'm sure um, my listeners will have got a lot out of it. So thank you very much. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. I'll see you later. Bye. So what did you think? A big takeaway for me from this interview was that you need to consume 120% of your race nutrition when you're trying to train your gut and for at least two weeks to properly train it. I also find it interesting that eating within one hour of exercise keeps your immune system strong something to really think about with training and racing recovery. I've always felt that eating quite quickly after a hard training session or racing is really good for recovery. And um, obviously it just goes to show not just recovery of the body for running, but recovery of the body for everyday life. Although I have to admit after um, racing, it's always a bit harder to eat, isn't it? Let me know your thoughts about the podcast, either in the comments on the Instagram podcast page, page or by DM. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate the people who take the time out of their day to get onto Apple Podcasts or their preferred podcast player to rate and review. I read all of the reviews and they sure do inspire me to keep working on this podcast. Next week's interview is with Stacey Sims, author of the brilliant book Raw and the creator of the saying, women are not small men. Stay tuned for that really interesting interview. Make sure you stay committed and consistent with your training, so important even when there are not races. If you're focused on improving as an athlete, email me, isabella peakendurancecoaching.com.au to organise an individualised training plan. Have a great week of training and stay safe.